Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Scripture reading this morning comes from three different short passages. Uh, first is Mark fourteen sixty-five, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And in Mark 15, 16 through 20, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And Mark 15, 29 through 32, And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Daniel Ackerman. If you don't know me or if I haven't met you, um, taking Greg's spot this morning, and I'm thankful to be here again. I was here in July. Uh, I'm Chad and Jill's son, if you didn't know that already, and I'm, I'm blessed and grateful to be able to say that with, with pride and with joy. Um, I am a, a student ministries pastor down in Cedarville, Ohio, uh, and will be heading there tonight again to go to youth group. So this is just the start of my day, but I'm grateful to be here with you guys. For someone who uh, speaks as much as I do, uh, I don't really like speaking in front of people. Um, actually, that's a joke. That's, that's a joke. But it would be ironic, right? Like, it'd be ironic for someone who's regularly speaking in front of people as they're speaking in front of people to say that they don't like public speaking. Like, that'd be an ironic, weird thing to say. But it's not true. Like, I just, I just told you a lie. But now as I think about it, it is also ironic that I would begin a sermon by telling a lie. Like, you, you would expect a pastor or preacher to tell the truth, right? To be honest with their words. But I just lied to you guys, so I'm sorry about that. But I bring that up to maybe set the stage and tell you guys that, that I enjoy irony, and I enjoy ironic situations, right? So when, when something that you do not expect to happen happens, and it's amusing to you, right? So for instance, you can think of an ironic situation like the police station being robbed, right? Like you would expect those who are charged to protect your community to be able to protect their own property, right? Or if, or if you are like me and you trip over your own feet and you get up and you say, well, that was graceful, when obviously like your words do not match up with the clumsiness that you just experienced, right? Irony is the revelation or the revealing of the unexpected. And I bring this all up to introduce the gospel to you guys as in many ways 
a gospel that is ironic, a, a gospel that is full of unexpected outcomes and unexpected twists of events, where the first are last and the last are first, where the rich are made poor and the poor are made rich, where in order to find your life, you must give it away. In order to save your life, you must lose it. Where the growth of the gospel is most grown and propelled when it is most suppressed. Where the foolishness of God is the wisdom of man. Or I should say that the other way. The wisdom of God is the foolishness of man. That was ironic, right? The passage, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark chapter 15, which was just uh, partly read for you guys, is a passage that is dripping with irony. It's dripping with irony. In, in Mark 15, we see words that are spoken to and about Jesus that are true, but are from unexpected and misplaced motivations. But it's the unexpected irony in this passage that helps reveal to us more precisely who Jesus is. So, we're going to see two scenes this morning where Jesus is presented to us as a king who dies and as a savior who, do not, who does not save himself. Like, and the call for us who read what takes place in this passage is that we, too, would live a life that is fully devoted to this totally unexpected, ironic, but totally worthy king and savior. So if we have a, a main idea that we're trying to maybe understand or walk away with this morning, it's this, that, that we would live a life of sacrifice and service in response to Christ's model of kingship and salvation. Okay, so I'll say that again. We are to live a life of sacrifice and service in response to Christ's model of kingship and salvation that we'll see in this passage. The Gospel of Mark, since we're hopping really right towards the end of this book, is in many ways a, a biography of Jesus, right? It's telling us who he is and what he has done. He is the Son of God who has come to establish his kingdom on this earth. But unlike any other biography, the Gospel of Mark is very careful to present to its readers the idea that to to know Jesus is not enough to follow him. Like, to, to follow Jesus demands a radical change of life for all those who would follow after him. Jesus demands a wholehearted devotion to him that expresses itself in a lifelong and life-giving journey of discipleship. So, when you read the Gospel of Mark, you can see clearly what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the disciples that are talked about in this gospel slowly and slowly and very poorly oftentimes learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. Not by receiving honor and praise in this life, but actually by following a path that leads to glory through suffering. That, that's the model of discipleship that Jesus presents to us in the Gospel of Mark. And the whole Gospel of Mark has been working its way up to this moment where we're reading this morning. In Mark chapter 15, where Jesus is in the crucible of suffering. All of his followers seem to have abandoned him. He is being uh, 
oppressed by religious and political regimes that have uh, threatened him. And Jesus himself has promised that, like, this is going to happen to him, that he is going to die. So the appointed time for his death is here. And with the king and savior of the world being paraded as a fraud, we, the readers of Mark's gospel, are presented here with, with two truths that we could either believe or we can reject. That Jesus is our true king and that Jesus is our true savior. So let's look in verses 16 to 20 of Mark chapter 15, where, we're see, where we see that Jesus is presented here as a true king through the mocking words of these soldiers. So I'm going to, we read it, but I'd like to read it again just to remind us of where we're at here. So Jesus, the soldiers uh, lead him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they call together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus, even right before this, has been brought before all the religious leaders in Jerusalem who then handed him over to Pilate as a religious revolutionary, right? Uh, someone who claimed to be king of the Jews and would threaten the Roman authorities, threaten the stability of Rome. And those who are supposed to be judges of this reason, ironically, are the ones who lay down a sentence on Jesus that is anything but just. Like, they're going to crucify him, which is where we picked up this morning. These soldiers leading Jesus to the cross, they, they're overseeing this whole affair, and they bring Jesus to this large room with likely hundreds of other soldiers with them, and they begin to mock this supposed king, right? This is foolish harassment. It's, it's tragic, but there's like a royal flair to it that they add to their mockery that can be appreciated by us as readers as an ironic twist from the Lord to emphasize the true nature of who Jesus is, right? So the soldiers clothe Jesus with a purple robe, which is, denotes like extravagance and glory and honor and power during this time. The soldiers twist together this crown of thorns and beat it onto his head. And the soldiers jokingly salute Jesus as the king of the Jews. Like This is a title that's been used already a couple of times in Mark's gospel. And it's used of Jesus as like an accusation against him, right? Because to be a king during this time in, in the Roman world is to threaten Roman rule. So they use this to try and uh, to bring him down. So if Jesus claimed to be a king over the Jews, then he is a problem. And now that Jesus is on his way toward death, the Roman soldiers take up the suit. They say, Hail, King of the Jews, as a jab at his failure to actually lead them into triumph. But of course, this is ironic because they are unaware that they are greeting the truly triumphant one, right? Who accomplishes victory in completely upside down and unexpected ways. The reality of the situation is far different from what is being meant by the words of the mocking soldiers. And then lastly, we read of the soldiers kneeling down and worshiping Jesus, all while spitting in his face. The depth of the tragedy is like, so obvious here, right? The soldiers kneel down, sarcastically paying their respects 
to Jesus, trying to give him honor and glory when he truly is the one deserving of honor and glory and praise. And of course, like the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, that at the end, and because of the suffering and resurrection of Jesus, all will bow down and worship Jesus. Like all will bow down and worship him. So again, totally unaware of this reality in the future, the soldiers are being an example of their own futures. They're an example of their own futures. They will be the ones who are actually bowing down in homage to Jesus. And they even spit in his face. They spit in his face, who Jesus, ironically, not long ago in the Gospel of Mark, used his own spit to, like, heal the eyes of a blind man and bring life and healing to a person. So from the mouth of these revilers and mockers comes death and dishonor, but from the mouth of Jesus comes blessing and life. So why did these soldiers mock Jesus? Were they just being cruel? But I think that's true. I think there's also more to it. I think it's because the soldiers mock Jesus because their, their example and their expectations for kingship was flawed, right? They thought to be a king means to have imposing power, to be dominant, and to be assertive. Jesus even talks earlier in the Gospel of Mark when he's speaking to his disciples about what servanthood looks like in the kingdom of God. He says the rulers of the Gentiles, they, they lord their authority over their citizens. Their great ones exercise authority and power over them, but it is not so in the kingdom of God. So a king like Caesar would be one who steals, who oppresses, who uh, destroys, who advances his kingdom through the sacrifice of others, right? But not himself. Like that's the model of kingship and authority that these soldiers have in mind. Triumph under this model of kingship centers on victory through killing. But in the wisdom of God, Jesus, our king, does not fit this mold. Like, triumph for Jesus centers on victory through sacrifice in the place of his people. This would be the means by which he would establish his kingdom. Because it is only through this suffering, crucifixion, and death that Jesus then, like, rises in triumph over the grave three days later and offers everlasting life to his people. But this is foolish to these Roman soldiers, which is, which is why they mock and they deride him. And I would suggest that although Jesus' very own disciples, like, in the gospel, aren't the ones who, like, beat the crown into his head or spit on him— they did have the same model for kingship. They did have the same expectation for what their Messiah would be like. I think of like Peter's words in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer, die, and rise again. Like Peter takes Jesus aside and says, uh, Jesus, I don't, I don't think that's, that's probably not right. Like you're, you're not thinking about this clearly. And Jesus calls him Satan and like rebukes him sharply. Peter himself had a flawed idea of what kingship looks like. Peter, like us, is tempted to view the ruling hand of God in terms of worldly power and not countercultural and self-giving love. Which leads me to believe that while we, of course, might not openly mock Jesus as a false king, we, I know I, can subtly rebuke his example when my life is not characterized by qualities that Jesus himself did not embody. The qualities of imposing power 
selfish authority, and self-serving control. Like, we're, we're all aware of ways in our own lives or in the lives of others that we can abuse positions of power to denigrate instead of encourage others. I'm aware that we often scorn Jesus by, by claiming his name, but wielding our own authority in domineering ways. And the New Testament speaks very often about how the example of Christ's kingship should impact authority in the kingdom of God. So consider, for example, like even in the leadership of the church, Peter speaks in 1 Peter chapter 5 saying, I exhort the elders, the pastors among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and listen, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you hear that? Like Peter, as a witness of Christ's suffering, recognizes that the leaders, the shepherds of God's church are to wield their authority with humility, not by domineering and imposing their power. Like a pastor is not to demand sacrifice from his congregation without himself being an example of self-giving love and service. Jesus as a humble king is the model for all of those who would even lead Christ's church to do so in a way that is humble, that is submissive to this model of kingship, and that is submissive to the idea that it is better to serve than to give, than to take. And then consider also how Jesus' model of kingship should alter, for instance, the love of a husband toward his wife. He no longer views her solely as a means of comfort or service and pleasure, but instead as a beloved bride on whom he pours out his love. Married men, the fact that Jesus worked hard during his entire ministry and then at the end of his life sacrificed himself for his followers means that we can work hard, come home, and continue to give of ourselves to our wives and family because that's the model that Christ has laid down for us. Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He did not exert his authority by yelling at his followers. He did not retreat to the basement to let them deal with their own needs and desires. He did not beat them into submission. He gave up himself for his beloved bride. Christian husbands make a mockery of Christ when their marriages are marked by domineering authority rather than self-sacrificial love. Like that, that's one way the model of Christ's kingship affects the kingdom of God. And in a similar way, like fathers, parents, all of us with kids or even in the children's ministry, we are to use God-given authority over children in a way that is gentle and compassionate. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Don't use authority and power as a, as a means of like satisfying your own desires and discouraging others. The kingship of Christ ought to transform even parenting in such a way that we do not abuse our influence over kids' lives in harmful ways, but graciously walk with them in, in, in gracious and corrective ways, exemplifying the humility and care of Christ. So the kingship of Jesus 
totally rewires the way that we think about authority in the church. And it is the kingship of Jesus that is ironically proclaimed here by like these priests and these kings and these rulers who thought of Jesus as like anything but a king. So from their mockery, we can understand though that Jesus is the true king. And from further ironic statements that come in these following verses, we see that Jesus is also the true savior. In verses 21 to 32, we see this further example of mockery and irony being used by Mark in his gospel. So, starting in verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That's Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So the injustice and the cruelty of Jesus' trial and execution continues in this passage here. And before we see Jesus hanging on the cross, enduring more mockery, we are introduced to like even several minor characters in this story. I don't know if you caught it as we read, but there's some minor characters that are introduced in this gospel that I think serve really a major role in helping us understand what true discipleship looks like. So in contrast to the mocking soldiers and in contrast to like the mocking people and religious leaders in the crowd, we see a man named Simon in verse 21. He's compelled to carry Jesus's cross, presumably because Jesus was too weak to carry it himself. And we also hear about in verse 27, two unnamed criminals who are at the left and right hand of Jesus as he is crucified. Now, We aren't told much about these characters in this gospel. We might think that Simon is well-known in the Christian community, and we know that one of the robbers on the cross next to Jesus eventually trusts in Jesus. So, like, we don't know too much, but I think the strategy of Mark at this point in the gospel as he is writing is to show us that the more and more we align ourselves with the suffering of Jesus, like the closer we are to him, the more and more our lives are going to be marked by suffering. The closer that these minor characters are to the crucifixion of Jesus, the closer their lives actually resemble his, carrying a cross and dying to themselves. And this is precisely what Jesus has already taught up up to this point in the gospel. So let's turn our attention now to verse 29, where we see more people coming to mock Jesus, to humiliate him with their words. And While the soldiers mocked Jesus for claiming to be a king, which is true, like he is a king, here the mockery is aimed at Jesus for being a savior, which, of course, he is. They say to Jesus, aha, you who would rebuild the temple in three days after destroying it, save yourself. 
Like earlier in Jesus's ministry, we're told in John chapter 2, Jesus had spoken how he would tear down like the temple structure and then rebuild it in three days. Now, naturally, they were thinking of like this physical, huge temple building that was in their midst. And Jesus was actually talking about like his own body, his own body being destroyed and raised again in three days because the temple was the place where people would go to be in the presence of God. And Jesus in the incarnation became God in the flesh. So like in many ways, Jesus himself became the true temple where God dwelt with man. Jesus was a true temple, not made by human hands, but was the exact representation of the Father in heaven. So when these people make fun of Jesus here in verse 29 for claiming to be able to destroy and read the te- rebuild the temple in three days, they do not realize that by crucifying him, they are like actually allowing him to prophetically fulfill what he had just said. Like how ironic is that? In other words, God is accomplishing what he intends to accomplish even when it doesn't look like anything is working in favor of Jesus. So like we we read Psalm 22 there in the beginning, and throughout this narrative, throughout the story here, there are a number of references to Psalm 22, which prior to the verses we read is is a, a song and a prayer of a suffering servant who Jesus now is prophetically taking the place of. People are dividing his clothes. They are mocking and wagging their heads. They are reviling him. There's even a cry of dereliction that takes place in verse 34 afterwards. These were all anticipated in Psalm 22. It's all in the hand and plan of God. So human foolishness often puts a veil over eyes of faith to shield us from seeing God's hand even in the most dire of situations. So, let, like, let this even be like a drive-by encouragement that for you who believe in God, know that God sustains his children even in the midst of chaos. Like, it, if you are a redeemed son or daughter of God, Jesus has said he will not abandon you or forsake you or leave you to deal with your suffering on your own. And here's why you can believe that. Because in this scene on the cross, Jesus did not give in to the mockery of the crowd. So look in verse 30. The people walking by the cross jokingly try to convince Jesus to save himself and to get down from the cross. In verse 31 and 32, the religious leaders joke with one another, you know, ha, he, he calls himself the Christ, the promised Messiah, but he can't even save himself. Come down, Jesus. Prove that you really are a savior. And of course, the irony here is that the reality of Jesus's identity is being proclaimed by these people, but just not believed in their hearts. Jesus really is the promised savior of the world. Promised from the beginning of Genesis as the one who would come and defeat sin and Satan forever. Like he is the Christ, the anointed one sent from the father, sent to take away the sin of the world and to establish his kingdom here on earth. And these religious leaders should know that, but their expectation of a savior is one who uses his abilities to save himself and not to save others. As Jesus is as, as if like Jesus saving himself from the cross would actually cause them to believe that he was who he said he was. But in reality, like we know 
The fact that Jesus did not come down from the cross is precisely why he is the savior of the world. Like, because the only means by which man can be restored to a a right relationship with God is for him to fully atone for our sin and bridge the gap that separates us from God by being a sacrifice in our place. So on the cross, like, Jesus had to be the one to take our place and to bear the penalty of our sin, which is death. So it's ironic that Jesus had spent his entire earthly ministry performing all of these miracles— like raising people from the dead, healing people who couldn't see, raising people who couldn't walk, giving people sound and sight, healing diseases. And the last miracle on this side of the grave was really a refusal to do the miraculous sign that the religious leaders were asking for. Like the last miracle of Jesus was no miracle at all because he didn't save himself. He didn't come down from the cross in order that he might save others. Because that is what Jesus has promised his mission to be in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, like unironically, I want to close by by calling you to consider what the sacrifice of Jesus means for your life by just asking a few questions for you to consider and think about. First, do you believe, do you, like, do you truly believe Jesus is the dying king and the suffering savior of the world? Like, maybe for a long time, you have had a wrong idea of who Jesus is, and specifically, who he is for you. My prayer, my hope is, is that if your expectations of the gospel have been distorted for any reason to think that it's imposing power and authority and control and selfish motives that get you eternal life and comfort and pleasure, that this vision of a powerful king laying down his life for his people would cause you to submit your life to him and to exemplify a life of sacrificial love toward others. Which leads me to the second question. Does the self-sacrificial love of Jesus displayed here compel you to live a life of sacrifice? If Jesus had had his needs and desires at the forefront of his mind while hanging on the cross, he might have saved himself. So it wasn't the nails, of course, that kept him in a place of suffering, but it was the love for those who would call upon him that did. So while our sacrifice And like in our service toward others doesn't like atone for people's sin like it does for Jesus. It does reflect a heart that is transformed by God's grace toward sinners. So is your life one marked by sacrifice? And and lastly, are you willing to suffer alongside Jesus? Are you willing to suffer alongside Jesus? So while it seems like all have abandoned Jesus at this point in the gospel, the presence of these fellow sufferers points us to the reality that if we are to follow Jesus, we too must pick up our own crosses and, like, and die for him. And it's not just like a one-time decision to submit to Jesus and, and to live for him, but really it's a daily call to die to ourselves every day, to lay aside our preferences, to kill sin in our lives and in our hearts, and to even bear the reproach and shame of other people who will think that we are fools. 
to identify with Jesus instead of identifying with the mocking crowds in Mark 15. Because, like, to revisit the main idea that we started with of this message, we are to live a life of sacrifice and service in response to Christ's model of kingship and salvation. A model that was totally unexpected, but totally necessary for our hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our true king and our true savior. Father, we are grateful for the model that we see here of of kingship and salvation, that, that Christ did not save himself, but gave of himself so that we might have hope of eternal life, so that we too, even in our suffering, may have hope of glory through the resurrection of your son, Jesus. God, we're, we're grateful for this sacrifice, but we know that apart from faith, this sacrifice is a testimony to the wrath of God against sin and the judgment of God that awaits those who do not place faith in him. So Lord, may we be a people, may we be, even here at Southside, a a church that exemplifies grace towards sinners, that doesn't exemplify a model of kingship and authority and power that, that brings others down, but just like Christ did, brings people to him, that draws people in, that reminds them that a life of sacrifice and service and self-giving love is a life that is worth living because it's life that you exemplified to us. God, may we have our hearts transformed to believe that that is true and that that is good for us to live in light of. We love you, Lord. We ask for your help in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.